Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. I'm Magna Chakrabarty, and this is The Jackpod, where On Point News analyst Jack Beatty helps us connect history, literature, and politics in a way that brings Jack's unique clarity to the world we live in now. Hello there, Jack. Hello, Magna. Okay, so we're at episode 19. What's your headline for today? The Meddler's Trap. The Meddler's Trap. Okay, what is that? Well, uh, it is a, a, a concept that is uh, re- as relevant to us today as could be. Secretary Anthony Blinken uh, yesterday commented, he said, I would argue that we have not seen a situation as dangerous as the one we're facing now across the region since at least 1973. He's talking about the confrontation, possible war that's building with Iran. That behind that war is the meddler's trap. It explains how it is we found ourselves in this, what what does he say, most dangerous situation in the region in, in 50 years. Mm. The meddler's trap, broadly defined, well, let's, let's, let's go to the definition. And I quote here from a very timely article in the uh, journal International Security. It's called The Meddler's Trap, McKinley, the Philippines, and the difficulty of letting go by Arup Mukharaji, who's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and International Affairs fellow and a, uh, a diligent researcher. And uh, uh, and he's taking us good, back to McKinley and the Philippines? Because, yes, he is, because it's, it's a paradigm case of the meddler's trap. Here's how he defines it. The meddler's trap denotes a situation of self-entanglement, whereby a military intervention abroad to solve one problem inadvertently creates a new problem that the leader feels he can solve. Uh, President McKinley had a decision to make, and his decision, which was to annex the Philippines, underlines and and sort of prefigured uh, recurring features of U.S. interventions in in Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, and uh, essentially showed how it is that once nations sent, once the United States has sent its troops in, uh, it has a very, presidents won't let go. Yeah, so Jack... um I must shamefully admit that my recollection of U.S.-Filipino history and the annexation uh, thereof is thin to non-existent. So can you just remind me, remind us about what McKinley's decision was, how he came about it, and why that matters today? Sure. Well, uh, the first shots of the Spanish-American War weren't fired in Cuba, but in Manila Bay. On May 1, 1898, when Commodore Dewey sank most of the decrepit Spanish fleet there, Spain was the imperial power, had been there hundreds of years in the Philippines. We uh, were in conflict with Spain over the Cuban independence struggle, 
And there was a, a, a plan that, well, we can't leave ourselves vulnerable to attack from the Spanish fleet. We'd better get them first. Dewey got them, sank them. And within a few weeks, uh, troops joined him. And those troops joined with the indigenous Filipino resistance, which ha had been fighting the Spanish occupation under a remarkable young man called Emilio Aguinaldo, 28-year-old general. They had been fighting for years for their independence. They joined with the Americans to drive out the Spanish. And it looked like we were going to repeat what we did in Cuba, which was we drove out the Spanish and then gave the Cubans their independence, subject to various conditions. Nevertheless, they had their independence. But that was not to be, uh, because President McKinley, over the summer of 1898, went from basically not being able to find the Philippines on a map <laughs> to feeling that uh, they were a vital national interest we had to hold on to them. We had got them because, after all, Dewey had routed the fleet. The soldiers had routed the Spanish garrison. We had them. And he was very reluctant to lose them. And, uh, and, and moreover, he had a, uh, he had a sort of uh, view that, well, the Philippines weren't, the Filipinos weren't ready for self-government. Mm. They were a primitive people, if you will. There was, there was a hierarchy of civilization, and they weren't up there with the Anglo-Saxons, but we could teach them. And that's what we would do when we annexed them. This uh, vision of, of what McKinley called benevolent assimilation, this vision was uh, essentially codified in a famous poem that came out just as the United States annexed the Philippines. The poem, The White Man's Burden, The United States and the Philippine Islands by Rudyard Kipling. Kipling yeah. Here's a flavor. Take up the white man's burden, send forth the best ye breed, go bind your sons to exile to serve your captives' need. Take up the white man's burden, the savage wars of peace, fill full the mouth of famine and bid the sickness cease. So there's the generous vision of what uh, American imperialism would uh, accomplish in the Philippine islands. Uh, we, would, we would uplift them in a period of, of holding them gently, uh, after they had learned how to govern themselves, we'd let them go. Well, Jack, can I just uh, open here? That was one. Uh, just, yes. So, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but this is yet another reason why I adore the jackpots. So that Kipling poem, you're right, is very well known. I've heard it recited or, or referenced countless times. I did not know it had to do with the U.S. and the Philippines. Uh, maybe it's because yeah, I never read the subheading of the, of the, the it, title of the poem, right. but that's remarkable. Yes, yes. He, he, uh, I think he lived in Vermont at the time. I'm not sure. I'd have okay. to check that. But he did live in Vermont for some years. And, of course, imperialism was very much his, his, uh, his vision of the world. That's right. The West owed it, owed it to these primitive peoples to raise them up. That was one view. Americans of conscience took another view. Here's William James writing in a personal letter. The way the country puked up its ancient principles at the first touch of temptation was sickening. Publicly, he said, we are now 
openly engaged in crushing out the sacredest thing in the great human world, the attempt of a people long enslaved to attain their freedom. He was talking about what had happened after annexation, which was that the Philippine rebels, if you were, freedom fighters who had been on our side, realized they'd been betrayed and entered and a war had began between the Americans and the Filipinos. It lasted three years. About 200,000 Filipino uh, civilians were killed in the war. Uh, and it was a, 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 an altogether disgraceful and discreditable episode mm. in imperialism. Well, so, Jack, it's clear from this example that um, the, the meddler is laid bare here. But what's... The trap. The trap was that once our troops had, had once Dewey had sunk the fleet, uh, President McKinley felt, and he, he operated under what our scholar calls the endowment effect, which is people uh, feel ownership of something. They don't want to lose it. And he began to speak of our flag flying over the, the Philippines. And he began to essentially feel that the military intervention created the national interest in holding the Philippines. There was no national interest in holding it. It was 7,000 miles, it is, from uh, San Francisco. A month, it would take a month by steamship to get there. We, we had no interest there at all, except that once this victory had been achieved, he, was, he had meddled and he was trapped. He felt he owned it. He couldn't turn back. And, uh, and what followed was disgrace. Let me just focus on the disgraceful aspect of this. Mark Twain wrote one of his great pieces to the person sitting in darkness, uh, essentially a cry against Im American imperialism. And in this passage, he, uh, he, he, he has us talking to the person sitting in darkness and telling him, well, we have been treacherous, but that was only in order that real good might come out of apparent evil. True, true. We have crushed a deceived and confiding people. We have turned against the weak and the friendless who trusted us. We have stamped out a just ally in the back and slapped the face of a guest we have brought a shadow from an enemy that hadn't it to sell. We have robbed a trusting friend of his land and his liberty. We have invited our clean young men to shoulder a discredited musket and do bandits' work under a flag which bandits have been accustomed to fear, <laughs> not to follow. We have debauched. America's honor and blackened her face before the world, but each detail was for the best. We're improving you, Philippines. Mm. Mm. Well, so the the trap then though is not temporary. It sounds like one of what one of the things you're getting to is that uh, the meddler remains trapped for I don't know even even generations. There, oh, Jack. Honestly, it's Iraq that pops to mind right now, but I think you have some a couple of other examples as well. Well, one, the outstanding thing was, yes, we meddled and we stayed, and we were there in 1941 when uh, uh, the Japanese, owing to our oil embargo, decided they had no choice but to move on the Dutch East Indies for the oil. 
Well, if you look at a map, to get to the Dutch East Indies, they have to go by the Philippines. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we had a base there, and we controlled the Philippines. And so the Japanese reasoned, we have to eliminate the American fleet there, but more importantly, in Pearl Harbor. In other words, it may be that if we weren't in the Philippines, we would not have gotten involved in the Pacific War at all. Oh, wow. <laughs> there might not have been, there might not have been a, a, a Pearl Harbor. There might not have been a horrifying Bataan death march for our soldiers. There might not have been the Japanese occupation of the Philippines, which was brutal beyond description. And then the American liberation of the Philippines, which was equally brutal. And the Battle of Manila, thousands upon thousands of Filipino civilians killed by our soldiers. No, the meddler stayed and if you meddle and you hang around, a new problem arises and you're in the neighborhood, you got to deal with it. And that, of course, that brings us to Iraq and Iran. Yes. Why did we, you know, why, why were the soldiers, three soldiers who were killed, at, you know, in, in the Jordanian desert, why were they there? To, uh, to, to, to monitor ISIS. Why was ISIS there? Because it, it grew up in reaction to our invasion of Iraq. Well, we were ha we've been hanging around in the neighborhood. No president has let go these, uh, these bases there. After all, they were needed. Because, even though uh, officially we have defeated ISIS four or five years ago, and to his credit, President Trump wanted to get them out of there, if only he had. Uh, but we're now, because of the meddler's trap, we're now faced with a situation of perhaps initiating a war, a general war, with uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran and, and a sort of grand finale of uh, the meddler's trap. Mm. But here's what's nagging, nagging at me right now, Jack, and that is essentially— what you're describing is an inevitability of any foreign intervention uh, taken on by a, a strong military power. I mean, to me, that makes it sound like, well, no matter what, every generation will be um, will be uh, living its life on a stage set by previous generations. Is there any way out of? not falling into the meddler's trap to begin with, short of total isolation. Letting go. Uh -huh. <laughs> Letting go. That's the, that, that's the you know, uh, uh, President Obama in his memoirs says, uh, I, had, I had inherited these wars. They were mine now, speaking of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, well, uh, we know how important or unimportant they were to us in the in the event, but there was the sense of I'm endowed, we can't lose it, can't lose Vietnam, can't lose Iraq, can't lose Afghanistan, can't lose Tower 22, where the three Americans were killed. These were, by the way, specialists Brianna Alexander Moffat, 23, of Savannah, Georgia, specialist Kennedy Laydon Sanders, 24, of Waycross, Georgia, and Sergeant William Rivers, 46, of Carrollton, Georgia. There's a, there's a line in a Kipling poem of the year just before uh, the, uh, he wrote The uh, White Man's Burden, recessional. He says, judge 
of the nations spare us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget, lest we forget the sacrifices these three Americans made because no American president could muster the imagination and the will to get them out of there. Mm. Well, Jackpot listeners, here's the time where I turn to you uh, because Jack has presented a very powerful idea here in The Meddler's Trap. So what do you think about that? Do you think that the U.S. should, U.S. leadership should muster up the courage, as Jack says, to let go, let go of vested military interests that we still have in many places around the world? Or do you see a potential strategic or national security downside to that? Uh, many people would argue yes. So if that's, if you're one of them, do let us know why you think that. And you can do that by giving us your responses over the OnPoint Vox Pop app. And if you don't already have it, go to where you get your apps Look for On Point Vox Pop, download it to your phone, and you can connect with us and the jackpot that way. We would love to know what you think about the meddler's trap. Uh, so, Jack, that was very, very eye-opening, and um, I want you to know that we had a similar response to last week's jackpot when you talked about the authoritarian playbook for 2025. So we're going to listen to a lot of listener feedback when we come back. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. Okay, Jack, so we're back. And just as a reminder, last week you talked about this idea of the authoritarian playbook for 2025, but specifically going through in detail many of the things that Donald Trump has said out loud himself that match perfectly with statements and actions taken by other authoritarians and dictators uh, throughout history and around the world. So we asked your listeners if they saw a similar pattern in Trump's statements, and many of them said absolutely yes. There's no question that Donald Trump would become a dictator. God forbid if he's given another term. People make a lot of excuses for Trump's statements, right? They say, oh, he's just... Uh trying to taunt the libs or throw red meat to the base or he misspoke or he's just engaging in locker room talk that all the guys do. Uh, it seems to me that we should take what he says on face value. And if we don't, we kind of deserve the outcome we get, right? I do not see Trump's statements showing that he is planning a dictatorship. I do know people who are Trump supporters and I think they support Trump 
because they feel like things were better under his leadership. I cannot believe we're even still asking, do you see a pattern? He is telling us clearly he is going to be an authoritarian. The people I know who are outspoken supporters of him, they also know this full well. This promise for authoritarianism, that's exactly why they worship him. There's so much misinformation that we could walk right into a dictatorship under Trump because people have no clue because they're not paying attention to facts. They're only paying attention and listening to what they want to hear and what makes them feel good. So that's Laura Reich in Charlotte, North Carolina, Thomas Webler in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts, Jamie Kaiser in Ridgefield, Washington, and Keith Grace in Point Pleasant, New Jersey. Just a couple Hello. of the responses we got, Jack. So what do you think? Well, uh, I agree with the people who are alarmed, but there was one um, uh, person in there, a lady, I didn't write down her name, unfortunately, um, but she made the point that, wait a minute. She knows Trump supporters, and they aren't voting for him because he's going to be a dictator. They're, they, they're voting for him because times were better under Trump. That's Jamie and, oh, Kaiser, they, by the way. That's Jamie in Washington. Yeah. 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 And uh, I, I get that. I, I really do. You can't—it's it, not that they're signing up for dictatorship, but here's the thing. Subjectively, that's their motive. I want better times. Objectively— they're voting for a man who's promising an authoritarian regime. I mean, they just can't get away from it. Mm. So you may be voting for him because you want better times. That's fine. And he may give them to you. He may also just sort of end of democracy as we know it. And he seems to be promising that. If he's saying he's going to give us a dictatorship, maybe we ought to listen to him. Mm. Well, Jack, we actually had some listeners also who uh, were looking kind of ahead past Donald Trump himself, um, and they wondered about uh, the long-term feasibility of Trumpism. So here's Mary Beth with a question from Detroit. Is there any reason to think he's planning on giving it like a kingdom where he's going to hand it off to somebody who wants, or is somebody going to take his place to be an authoritarian leader? Like if, if Trump dies? Does Trumpism die? And the authoritarian apparatus die? That's what I'm curious about. Well, Jack, I actually have a thought about this, if you don't mind me sharing, um, because I think Mary Beth is getting to a very, very important question here, because she's essentially asking, you know, does is the idea or the ideas, right, that animate Trumpism, do they have staying power when the charismatic leader himself, whenever that might be, is no longer at the center of, you know, is no longer the greatest mouthpiece for those ideas? And I think over throughout history, we have seen that, yes, ideas can persist, their, uh, can last longer than their founders, for sure. And we have evidence here that that is, I think, inevitably going to happen in the United States because the Republican Party itself has completely abdicated uh, its responsibility to have any identity individually and apart as a party from Donald Trump, right? I mean, I think we've been saying since 2016 the Republican Party is the party of Trump, and they, you know, they essentially put it into writing in 2020 when, in uh, during the uh, the conventions, the Republican Party voted to have no platform. <laughs> yeah, they literally right, stood right. for nothing yeah. other than, as they wrote in their 
ersatz platform whatever Donald Trump wants. So that plus the electoral success in terms of galvanizing a uh, supremely loyal base that Trump has been able to do, I think those two things put together have proven to those who might want to follow Donald Trump that that's a winning formula. And I don't think I think it's going to take some time to convince them um, of uh, otherwise, Jack. I think you're absolutely right. And the sort of political sociology of it, the sense of grievance, especially among rural white Americans, the sense of having been left behind, the sense of being looked down upon by, coast, quote, coastal elites, uh, the, 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 you know, the whole issue with what's happened with manufacturing under in recent years and the China shock and um, trade and on and on. All of this has produced a kind of you know, Trumpian political uh, sociology, and that's not going to go away. And those grievances are there to be tapped. I just am slightly, slightly encouraged that sort of the, the paladin of this, Governor DeSantis, didn't make it through the primary, and someone who seemed pretty sane did. Uh, admittedly, she didn't do nearly as well as Trump, and she's not going to fare very well in South Carolina. But at least in those two tests, Voters had the uh, they didn't vote for the new Trump. They voted for the uh, sort of many of them did for the old Republican Party. Maybe it's in exile. Maybe it can come back. Ah, well, we'll see. But you're exactly right to point out um, the causes of the grievances that many Trump voters uh you know, contain within themselves because I think his genius was tapping into those real things, but then metastasizing them into um, an anti-democratic force. But, but Jack, actually speaking of people who, um, Americans who support Trump, we got a fascinating message from a jackpot listener named Ann Coleman. She's in Troy, Michigan. Now, she says she's a Democrat, but her brother supports Donald Trump. And Anne told us that after listening to last week's Jackpod, she actually called up her brother to ask him what he thought. I explained to what the podcast was about and asked him if he thought that Trump would become authoritarian and not leave. And he disagreed with that. He believes that Trump uses language to see where the opposition will take his sound bites. And second, he said that there's evidence support that he wouldn't be an authoritarian leader because he left willingly, even though he believed he won. Hmm. Then Anne added this, that while Donald Trump may speak explicitly about what he would do as a dictatorial leader, here's what Anne says her brother thinks Trump means. He says, if you listen fully to Trump's speech, he says that he'll be a dictator on day one. The way my brother understands that is that Trump is saying he'll be dictator on day one only. He will enact some things and then he'll be a fair Democratic president from day two on. So what do you think about that, Jack? Uh, well, I'm, uh, it, 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 it's great to hear this point of view, and uh, and I'm really uh, uh, moved that Anne would, you know, involve her brother in this colloquy, which couldn't be more important. But I guess if somebody says they're going to be a dictator on day one, it, everything we know about human beings says you're not a dictator for day one. <laughs> and no democratic leader would ever speak that way. So I think we have to take Trump both literally and seriously. Mm. Well, uh, and by the way, she's not only um, a listener of the jackpot, but uh, she's essentially a um, 
a one-woman marketing team for us as well, Jack, because I want to just listen to this last comment from her. I'm really happy to be in a conversation with someone with such a different view where we can really share openly and without shame, blame, or judgment. And I did encourage him to listen to the jackpot. I will send him a link and I know because he's interested in history and things that he'll he'll be he'll be interested. So, yeah, thank you so much. And Anne, thank you so much as well, because a is totally right to be able to have conversations um, of, from very disparate points of view is, uh, I would say, one, it's a our obligations as Americans. And uh, and two, it's a real pleasure to hear that she did that with her brother. So Anne's brother, whomever you are and wherever you are. We do welcome you to the jackpot, right, Jack? We do, and Anne, thank you so much. That that's such a uh, a moving testament to at least what we're trying to do to talk to everybody. Exactly. So Anne's brother, and I'm sorry to call you that. Uh, <laughs> when you when you listen to the jackpot, get that on point uh, Vox Pop app, Anne's brother, and and do enter into the conversation with us. Leave us a message and let us know what you think, who you are, and uh, what you think of the jackpot. So hoping to hear from you, Anne's brother, um, as soon as uh, as soon as soon you possibly can do that. But that brings us to an end for episode 19 of the jackpot. So Jack, thank you so very much. Thank you, Meghna. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is the jackpot from On Point.